calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hi, everyone. Happy, happy Friday. If you are listening on the day this episode comes out, I hope you have some fantastic weekend plans. If you are celebrating the holidays, I hope that maybe you're going to a white elephant party or maybe an ugly sweater party or maybe you're just planning on getting completely sloshed on some holiday-themed beverages this weekend with your loved ones. Whatever it may be, I hope that you are all looking forward to something. I am having a child-filled week. I kind of thought that leading up to the holidays, I wouldn't be as busy with nannying and extra babysitting and things like that that I tend to do. But it's actually been the opposite. I've been very, very busy. I actually spent last night with Mr. Wilder, Lauren from Keep It Weird's son, and I will be with him pretty much all weekend as well. So pray for me because that kid fucking lives up to his name. (laughs) He's nuts, but I love him so much. He's just my little bestie. And I've been watching so many Christmas movies with little E, my 10-year-old, and it's just been so much fun leading up to the holidays, being with these kids. And I'm going to wrap up the episode talking about holiday-themed stuff with kids because I am talking about some pretty intense stuff during this episode, and I want to end it on a bit of a lighter note. So I'll stop there with that rant. But next thing I wanted to go into is Patreon, of course. For those of you who did not listen to the last episode, I wanted to let you know that The Bell Jar is going to be the final book that we are covering for the Angry Feminist Book Club. So if you are interested in hearing all of that, just go to patreon.com slash angry neighborhood feminist and you can join the Angry Feminist Book Club for $5. Last month, I posted an episode that was covering the documentary Dope is Death, 
I highly recommend that you go to Patreon and listen to that. I put a lot of effort into that episode, and it is a very, very important topic. It is an important story. So if you are not aware of the documentary and you want to learn a little bit more, definitely go check out that episode on the Angry Feminist Book Club as well. On top of that, there's like 10 other books, I think, that I covered this year that all have multiple episodes attached to them. So if you're looking for something to binge, there you have it. But on top of the Angry Feminist Book Club, I am also offering you another level, which is the Feminist Faves level, which you can join for $8 a month, where you get all of the Angry Feminist Book Club content, but you also get these episodes ad-free. You usually get them about a day early. I've now started uploading sort of recaps after the full-length episode goes up on Monday to kind of talk about the topic a little bit more and talk about the episode because so often I think of extra things while I'm listening back and editing and so on and so forth or I remember that there was something that I forgot to mention that I want to bring up or maybe I'll just go on and shoot the shit with you all for a little bit. I didn't do one this week because thankfully I'm feeling much better now but I have been so sick this week but I do want to do a little recap about the topic of Molly Burkhart and the Osage Reign of Terror once I've seen the movie. I think that that would be really great for me to revisit that topic again and get my reaction after seeing what apparently is like a, is it three or three and a half hours long movie? Oh boy. So anyway, if you want to join in on all of the fun, just go to patreon.com slash angry neighborhood feminist and join me there. Your financial support over there is so unbelievably helpful to this show. I appreciate it so, so much. And on top of that, I hope that I can give you some wonderful content as a thank you. And thank you to all of you who have listened to me this year as we are closing out 2023. I love seeing all of your Spotify wrapped stuff and hearing from you all. It makes me so, so happy. As always, thank you for your love and support. All right, I'm done avoiding this news episode. Let's get into it. The first thing that I want to talk about, well, everything today is going to be regarding the Israel-Hamas war. And the first thing that I wanted to get to was the end of the ceasefire, because I believe last episode when I chatted with you all last Friday, we were in the seventh and final day of the ceasefire, and I was talking about all of the hostages that had been released and so on and so forth. And I had really hoped, albeit tentatively hoped, that this ceasefire, this temporary ceasefire would continue and be a lasting one and possibly, you know, negotiations would lead us to seeing an end to this war. But unfortunately, fighting has resumed between Israel and Hamas, ending that seven-day ceasefire. There are two sides, of course, in this war, Hamas and Israel, and both sides are claiming different reasons as to why the ceasefire ended. The Israeli government is accusing Hamas of violating the terms of agreement, with the prime minister saying that they did not release all of the women hostages and has launched rockets at Israeli citizens. They said that on the last day of the ceasefire. 
On the other hand, Hamas blamed Israel for the resumption of fighting, saying that they refused to accept all offers to release other hostages. So it seems that they were at a bit of a stalemate. And as I said in last week's mini episode, it was always the Israeli government's intent on continuing the war once the ceasefire had ended. So it is unsurprising that everything is gone back to the way that it was before. Within seven hours of the fighting resuming, the Hamas-run health ministry said more than 60 people were killed. And here in the United States, there is a significant divide growing further and further between the opinion of the Israel-Hamas war and the ceasefire. Our government has most certainly taken the side of Israel's right-wing government, but a large majority of American civilians support an immediate ceasefire in the conflict, and many also oppose American military aid to Israel and believe that our country should be a neutral mediator and not be so directly involved. Biden has spoken on his rock-solid and unwavering support to Israel and has compared Hamas to ISIS. The U.S. also said they would send for Iron Dome missiles, small bombs, and JDAM conversion kits in addition to fulfilling previous contracts which promised to deliver F-35 fighter jets, CH-53 helicopters, and KC-46 air refueling tanks. There have also been some details leaked regarding the U.S. sending other weapons to Israel as well. All of those initials and numbers really mean nothing to me, except for the fact that I am aware that these are very expensive weapons of war that the U.S. government has decided to send over to the Israeli government, the Israeli military, in support of their attack on the Palestinian people. Biden even called on Congress to pass $14.3 billion in emergency aid to Israel. Do I think that the Israeli civilians and people do not deserve some sort of help and support? No, that is not necessarily my stance. I do not believe that the U.S. government has a responsibility to step in and do the things that it has done. I don't think that we have to get ourselves involved in all of these wars. I don't understand why that has become such a part of our American patriotism in a way. And the fact that President Biden and more people in our government are not speaking about protecting the civilians of Palestine is very, very unsettling to me. And it just seems like it's drawn such a huge line in the sand about who we are supporting rather than looking at this entire conflict and war as being a massive humanitarian crisis, a massive devastation, and something that should not be encouraged to continue. And in my eyes, by sending all of this money, by sending all of these weapons, we are urging this fighting to continue. And I understand that it was Hamas that started this whole war on October 7th when they came and attacked Israel. I understand this. I understand that the Israeli government, the Israeli people feel a need to defend themselves. I understand this. But from what I also understand, they have an incredibly right-wing and corrupt government that does not see the Palestinian people as human beings. They see all of them as being something to do with Hamas. And that has been one of the biggest deterrents for me during this crisis is the comparison 
of every Palestinian person to being a terrorist. That is nowhere near being close to the truth. There is an argument that it was the Palestinian people who voted for Hamas to come into power, but there have been so many times through history where people have been swayed in the wrong direction and were hoping for a positive change by bringing in a new government official or a new group of people and finding out that it had absolutely devastating circumstances that came along with it. And I very much think that the people of Palestine do not think that what Hamas is doing is good. They do not like the way that they are being treated by Hamas. So by lumping every Palestinian person as being Hamas is not helpful to this cause. It is not helpful to the innocent people who are losing their lives in Gaza right now. It is absolutely devastating to see the amount of devastation that has occurred on the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. Sorry, I just went way off of my notes there, so I'm going to pull myself back in. This girl has feelings. When polled, it seems that it's mostly right-wing people in the U.S. that are in support of the Israeli government, while people on the left have chosen to either be in the middle or slightly more sympathetic to the Palestinian people. And I myself just remain incredibly sympathetic to every single civilian whose lives have been upended by this war, whether they be a Israeli person or whether they be Palestinian or whether they be someone else who has somehow gotten involved in this conflict. But I see the devastation in Gaza and how the Palestinian people are being mistreated, and I cannot help but somewhat shift my focus more to that cause at the moment. Gaza, which is roughly 139 square miles, or about the size of the city of Detroit, had already began experiencing a severe humanitarian crisis before these attacks even began on October 7th. As a result of a 16-year blockade by Israel, about 95% of the population cannot access clean water, and more than half of all of Gaza depends on international assistance for just basic services. On top of that, an additional 80% or so of Gaza's residents are considered refugees under international law, and Palestinians overall compose the largest stateless community in the world. Roughly 17,177 Palestinian people have died in Gaza since October 7th. Though I'm sure in all reality, recording of such a high rate of death so quickly is tough to get accurate, so I'm sure that number is much higher. There have also been thousands of people reported missing. This is not to say that Hamas has not done damage to the people of Israel, as on the day of the initial attack, Hamas killed around 1,200 Israelis and about 70% of them were civilians, which is absolutely devastating. Since that initial attack, Israel has imposed a complete siege of the Gaza territory, cutting off electricity and water, as well as a supply of food and medicine. Without fuel, Gaza has gone completely dark. Israeli airstrikes have also completely destroyed these cities. They have destroyed schools, mosques, and entire neighborhoods. Though Israel is reporting that they're only targeting weapons storage centers and infrastructure used by Hamas militants. This is a fucking lie. I have eyes. And the thing that gets me is they're like, well, it's not our fault that Hamas is hiding weapons in hospitals. And I'm like... What makes you think they are? I I would love to see some proof. What is your intel? 
that has led you to thinking that some of the really horrific things that you have decided to do in this war were okay. I I cannot comprehend. By the second week in November, Gaza's health system completely collapsed, with hospitals running low on rationed fuel reserved and medical supplies. Hospitals all over Gaza are overflowing. And on top of that, in the beginning of November, Israel targeted Al-Shifa Hospital, the largest and best equipped hospital there. On November 15th, Israeli military raided the hospital, calling for an evacuation of the building. The World Health Organization considered this to be a death sentence for all of the patients in the hospital, which contained 22 intensive care patients, 36 premature babies, and more than 2,000 displaced people in the hospital. The UN in November launched a $481 million flash appeal to address the needs of the people in Gaza and the West Bank. The UN's Children's Fund, UNICEF, and UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East are helping to provide essential goods and services such as medical supplies, fuel, and emergency assistance. Other organizations like the International Red Cross and Red Crescent Movement are also supplying humanitarian aid. But with the fighting continuing, how much can they really help the people of Gaza and the West Bank? Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. An IDF spokesperson told CNN on Monday that they believe that they have killed two Palestinian civilians for every Hamas militant and called this ratio tremendously positive. Is it... Now, people have said that this was just a terrible choice of words, but I can't help but focus on the fact that they seem to be completely fine with the fact that they have killed so many innocent people compared to people that they see as being dangerous. And I also read somewhere that they see a non-civilian person, someone who is militant, as being anyone who is fighting. And I don't know what that means. Fighting in what sense? Because you know what? If you're being attacked, (laughs) your instinct might be to fight back. I apologize. Just then, Max got home from the grocery store and just barged into the bedroom, which he does sometimes. So enjoy this little interaction. They can hear you. Do you want to say anything to the people? No. Okay. (laughs) All right. Back to the topic at hand. Israeli officials have stated that about 5,000 Hamas militants had been killed since October 7th. So in their estimation, that means that we would double that number for the civilian casualties that the Israeli government is totally okay with murdering. And this leads me into another topic that I wanted to focus on in regards to this war. 
It's also taken a severe toll on journalists since the attacks first launched on October 7th. The Committee to Protect Journalists, or CPJ, have been investigating all reports of journalists and media workers killed, injured, or missing in the war since October 7th, showing what has led to the deadliest month for journalists since CPJ began gathering data in 1992. As of December 7th, the day that I'm recording this, CPJ's preliminary investigations show at least 63 journalists and media workers were among the more than 17,000 killed since the war began. It is estimated that there is about one media worker or journalist killed each and every day on average. The deadliest day for journalists was the first day, October 7th, with six journalists killed. The second deadliest day was November 18th, with five killed. For reference, there were 63 journalists total killed during the entirety of the Vietnam War, which took place over a span of 20 years. This war has only taken up two months. On October 27th, after seeking assurance that the journalists would not be targeted, the Israel Defense Forces, IDF, told routers and agents France Press news agencies that they could not guarantee the safety of journalists operating in the Gaza Strip. Here are all the numbers. Like I said, there have been a total of 63 journalists who have died. 56 of them were Palestinian, 4 were Israeli, 11 journalists have been reported injured. Three journalists were reported missing. Nineteen journalists have been arrested. And there have been multiple assaults, threats, cyber attacks, censorship, and killings of family members of journalists. There were an estimated 1,000 journalists in Gaza before the start of this war. And it's said that now, no one can get out. They're trapped. From the UN website, The Safety of Journalists, Journalism, an Essential but Dangerous Profession. It says, journalism is fundamental for sustainable development, human rights protection, and democratic consolidation, but remains a dangerous and too often deadly profession. In nine times out of ten, the murder of a journalist goes unsolved. The CPJ has emphasized that journalists are civilians who are doing important work during these times of crisis and that they should not be targeted by warring parties. Journalists in Gaza in particular are paying a very high toll and face immense threats. A CPJ statement says, Many have lost colleagues, families, and media facilities and have fled seeking safety when there is no safe haven or exit. These journalists have continued to work even without houses, food, family, or even a place to work. They are living and sleeping in hospitals, doing their best to report what is happening in the Gaza Strip to the rest of the world. The IFJ and Reporters Without Borders have called for an investigation into the deaths of the journalists and media workers. There have been many prominent Palestinian journalists on social media who have been documenting their experiences in the war, and I highly suggest that you go and follow them as well. Now many of them are sharing their last messages as they fear the end of their lives. On December 2nd, Motaz Azaza, whose Instagram profile is at Motaz, M-O-T-A-Z underscore A-Z-A-I-Z-A, posted, It's about life or death now. I did what I could. We are surrounded by Israeli tanks. There is no safe place, and people just don't know where to go. 
Bissan Auda, who I have been following very closely on Instagram and highly recommend you following her at Wizard Bison One, which is B-I-S-A-N One, posted. I no longer have any hope of survival like I had at the beginning of this genocide, and I'm certain that I will die in the next few weeks or maybe days. My message to the world, you are not innocent of what is happening to us. You as governments or peoples that support Israel's annihilation of my people, we will not forgive you. Humanity will not forgive you. Even if we die, the history will never forget. Maggie Freeling, an American journalist I follow on Instagram, has been posting a lot about the issue, so she would also be a great person to follow. In one of her captions, she wrote that she herself is Jewish, and she still condemns the fact that her colleagues are being murdered in cold blood for doing their jobs. Journalists must be protected in order for the stories of the mass amounts of victims in this war to be told. Okay, let's get out of a really, really sad place, and let's talk about Santa. Now, I don't know why any of you would listen with children around, but if for any reason you have a small child with ears near you, maybe pause this episode and listen to the rest of it later. If any of you follow me on my personal Instagram page, at She's Madigan, in case you want to follow me, you would have seen a series of stories I posted earlier in the week regarding the belief in Santa Claus. I was watching the movie Elf with the little 10-year-old. I hate referring to her as that, though, so I'm going to call her E. I think I already said that earlier in the episode once. And we were enjoying some popcorn and snuggling her little chihuahua olive when she turns to me and asks if this actually happened. Confused, I asked her to clarify. What do you mean? She says, I mean, like, is this a real story? I asked, like, based on a true story? She said, yeah. I was shocked. <laughs> was this 10-year-old child in the era of TikTok and Google asking me if Elf really happened? Now, this just sent me spiraling. Thinking on my feet, I told her I had never heard of an elf coming to visit New York City, so I didn't think the story had actually happened. But maybe, maybe it could. This got me thinking about the fact that she still does Elf on the Shelf as well, which I'm wondering when this became a thing because I don't recall any friends of mine having Elf on the Shelf when I was little. I feel like this is totally like a, maybe a millennial parent thing. I don't know. But when I'm taking care of E every day, she shows me what her little elf, Sparkles, has gotten into. And she has no sense of irony or humor or like, oh, look what Sparkles did. It's like, oh my gosh, look what Sparkles did. She got into my makeup. And it's like, oh, that elf, she did it again. And apparently you're not supposed to touch the elf. And the other day, Sparkles was inside one of those cardboard wine holders. And when her dad picked up the wine holder, she freaked out and was like, Dad, don't touch it! Sparkles! And he was like, don't worry, I grabbed the handle, I didn't touch the elf. And I'm like, wow, like, you really believe. And with this information, I can only surmise that the child also still believes in Santa Claus. Now, hear me out. I love that she still has that magic and belief and I want her to have that. But at the same time, I am slightly judging this child whom I love so much. I mean, 10 just seems a little old to me. 
I myself had a handful of friends growing up who just straight up didn't believe in Santa and would tell me he wasn't real due to the fact that I went to Catholic schools and would tell me that he wasn't real due to the fact that I went to Catholic schools and some people believe that Santa is some sort of pagan idol or something, but my mom always told me not to listen to them and that she was actually sad for them that they didn't believe. That's such a thing my mom would say. Another thing she always says to me, too, is if you don't believe, you don't receive. So to this day, I'm all gung-ho for saying that I believe in Santa, if that means that my mom will write heart Santa for one of my Christmas presents. And this really gave me some self-confidence as a kid on this subject for a while. But I had this one friend in particular named Jackie, who I've definitely spoken about on the show before because she was something else. And she worked extra hard to convince me that he wasn't real. And by the time I was eight, I was like, okay, Jackie, I kind of see your point. So I confronted my mom and asked her if she was Santa. And when she confessed to me that she was... I burst into tears. Don't worry, they were happy tears. I believe it was that same year that Santa had given me this super realistic baby doll that I wanted. It had a heavy head, the same weight as a real newborn baby. You could pick the hair color and the eye color, and then you had a little like open mouth for a pacifier. And this was like the ultimate baby doll, in my opinion. And I named her Gracie. And to this day, I still think of that as being the best Christmas gift I ever received just because of how happy I was when I opened up the wrapping paper and saw that I'd gotten one of these dolls for myself. So of course, when I found out that my mom was the one that got me Gracie, I was like, you got me Gracie? Thank you. (laughs) I thought it was so sweet that my mom got me that baby doll that she like knew enough and paid attention enough to know exactly what I wanted. It didn't have to be some mystical man flying above my house. My mommy loved me. (laughs) And on the other hand, Wilder isn't so sure of Santa. I was watching him last night and I was like, oh, what are you going to ask Santa for? Are you going to go see him? And he's like, no, I'm going to write him a letter. And I'm like, Makes sense. A lot of kids are scared of Santa. I was scared of Santa for a little bit when I was a kid and eventually grew out of it. But I was talking to Lauren about it when she got home last night. And I guess he just seems a little bit like uneasy about the idea of Santa. And, you know, she's been telling him, you know, you have to be good. Santa's watching. You don't want to get on the naughty list. And yesterday in the car, she said that just like very earnestly and concerned Wilder was like, why can Santa see me? And Lauren was like, oh no, (laughs) that is kind of creepy. And uh, his dad was like, I just don't like lying to him. I feel like, you know, your parents are the one person you're supposed to trust and they lie to you about this thing for years and years. How are you ever supposed to trust them? And, you know, that never crossed my mind as a kid, but I did also really resonate with what he said. So I wanted to open up this conversation to all of you and have you tell me a little bit of your opinions on all of this. Do you think it's a good idea to quote unquote lie to our children and tell them that Santa and these elves really exist? Do you kind of feel Wilder's vibe and feeling a little unsure of the fact that these magical beings can see us all the time and how that's a little bit creepy? And what age do you think it's normal if you do believe in Santa for the quote unquote truth to come out? 
Like I said, I think 10 is a little old. I asked my friends on Instagram and a lot of people said eight. I was eight. I feel like eight is kind of like a normal age. But I really want to hear your thoughts and I want to read them out on the next episode so we can all have a little bit of extra holiday cheer, especially when there's so many shitty things happening in the world. So let me know your Santa Claus thoughts, feelings, experiences, etc. Email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist. Also, don't forget to give yourself the gift of Angry Neighborhood Feminist Patreon Joy and go over to patreon.com slash angry neighborhood feminist or click the link in the bio where you can join the $5 Angry Feminist Book Club, soon to be Mad Gavin with Madigan, or you can join the $8 Feminist Faves level for all sorts of extra goodies and content and you can show me a little bit of extra love and support as well. And if you really want to go above and beyond, if you love this show and you have the Apple Podcast app and you for some reason have decided not to leave a review for this show yet, that would be another really, really great holiday gift to me. If you were to go over there, leave a five-star review and a quick sentence as to why you enjoy the show. But hey, if you like listening on Spotify, you can also rate me over there as well. I won't be mad at you. All right, that is all I have for you today. With all of that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.